All right, Dr. Blanton. So thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, you, are, before we get into like the reason why I, I asked you on this show, tell me a little bit about your background and where you are right now. Okay, I, uh, I'm an archaeologist. Uh, but I also do uh, compare what's called comparative uh, cross-cultural research. And uh, I've been interested in how states get built. How do people build states? And uh, <clears throat> the Western uh, social sciences uh, have pretty much insisted that the West and its democracy is a completely unique phenomenon. And so uh, those of us who do you know, field work, I work in Mexico primarily on early state building. Uh, we were pretty sure from our data that that's not correct. Uh, oh, there are wow. lots of kinds of uh, states in the past, not all of them, but many that look more like a democracy, not in every detail. Huh. But if they... Um, for example, if rulers uh, make themselves uh, open to criticism and even impeachment, if they provide public goods, if they uh, convince their citizens that they have a, an effective government, uh, that's another way to build a, uh, a polity that doesn't involve this kind of despotic control that was always assumed in the, in the past before the rise of uh, of uh, Western democracy. So anyway, uh, it did a big comparative study uh, of uh, pre-modern states not influenced by, uh, you know, democracy or Western ideas of governance or anything like that. And uh, it took us several years to code a whole bunch of data (laughs) on that topic and then did statistical analysis. And sure enough, some of the same kinds of processes that political scientists talk about are evident, very much so in the past. And then mainly what it is, is that if the government depends on a, a large proportion of citizens for their revenues, they will have to uh, address citizen concerns, they'll have to provide public goods, they'll, they'll have to make themselves uh, liable to impeachment and criticism and so on, if they want people to continue to be motivated to pay taxes. But if the leadership has control of some kind of valuable resource, like in Russia, you know, Putin controls the oil and natural gas. If long as that leader is able to control those resources independently, they don't have to listen to the citizens. They don't really have to do that much because they're not obligated to the citizens. So we <clears throat> we looked at the kind of fiscal economy of states, and then looked at their uh, the kind of state that they uh, had built, and we found strong uh, uh, statistical evidence that that actually works. In the past, it was assumed it only worked in the present. Hmm. Uh, and uh, so, anyway, then. One of the things I noticed, though, was that in these uh, situations, even if you have good government, uh, people depend a lot on the leadership to set a moral standard. And because, uh, you know, people say, okay, I'm paying my taxes, I'm being a good citizen, I expect Mm -hmm. the leadership 
to show that same kind of moral commitment to the society and making things better for everybody. Uh, but one of the things I noticed, I hadn't planned to work on this particularly, is that uh, in many cases, if the leadership fails <clears throat> to uphold that moral code that they're expected to, they become selfish or whatever. Uh, people lose confidence in the whole government. Uh, and then you start this downward spiral of lack of, uh, you know, commitment to paying uh, taxes. People may shirk on their taxes. They may uh, mount oppositional movements to the state. Uh, and then the state's governance isn't adequate, so there's more corruption and people become more and more disenchanted with it. And what I found was these states that are pretty well organized uh, as you know, uh, good government states have a tendency more than other more autocratic states to really undergo a major collapse if the leadership sort of opts out from their obligations. Wow, and, uh, interesting. In that article, I, uh, I had actually done a more technical paper on this uh, that I published several years ago. I want to uh, hear more about that, but I'm going I'm to try to recap all you just said because okay, there's a lot. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there was a, a lot, lot there. Yeah, I know. Well, hey, it's about, oh, uh, 10 years of work. <laughs> oh, wow. So that's amazing. So I kind of, it seems like I've hit kind of a gold mine with this topic with you. So I'm super pumped for that. But I want to, I want to back up to what you said originally is that we have this idea that the Western type of democracy that we have today in America is new. It's extremely brand new. That is the very first of its kind. Mm -hmm. The constitution, the, the declaration of independence is all mm -hmm. the very first of its kind. Mm -hmm. What you're saying is that that's not necessarily the case that, maybe hundreds, if not thousands of years ago, there were governments, it might've been tribal governments, but there were governments that were almost identical to today's America. Is that what I'm hearing? Mm -hmm. Yeah. In a lot of respects, there's some particularities that are different. For example, uh, the way that these rulers have to operate is to listen to the citizens. I mean, they need to have, the citizens need to have what we call voice. You know, mm -hmm. some say if they're upset about things or if there's some kind of public good that they think would be useful, there has to be some communication channel between the citizens and the rulership. In democracy, a lot of times in modern democracy, that's elections. Uh, that's only been true in terms of having widespread uh, ability to uh, vote for about the last hundred years. It's actually fairly recent if you think, for example, that women couldn't vote till the early 20th century. Mm -hmm. So uh, that's actually fairly recent. But in the past, rulers had all kinds of ways. Uh, and citizens had a lot of ways to communicate, petitions, uh, you know, we have a, some of these people had like regular meetings and people could uh, complain or you know, issue a petition or write in mm -hmm. so far. And in all kinds of ways. We do that now, a lot of yeah. ways that we communicate that aren't necessarily voting, yeah. which is voting is fine, but it's, it's, uh, it's up to these rulers to make sure they have some way to address the citizen voice. And they, you're saying that they did 
that very similarly in the early tribal governments or democracies? Yeah, I wouldn't call them uh, tribal because okay. these are uh, these are large scale societies. They're usually uh, multi-tribal. Uh, and yet these uh, rulers or the ruling groups or whatever have to incorporate all of that uh, tribal and other religious okay. uh, forms of diversity into a polity so that people can interact more mm -hmm. freely and participate, let's say, in the marketplace, go to a city and sell goods or buy goods and have, feel free to move around. So you have to suppress the tribal okay. aspect. Yeah. Not do away with it, but just make people be, feel more like they belong to something larger. Yeah. What was the uh, main civilization that you were studying? Well, there were 30 that we studied in uh, detail. Uh, I picked four for that article just because I couldn't you know, talk about all 30 in a short article. Uh, but as I was doing that, I noticed uh, this tendency for some rulers to not live up to their expectations. And there were other examples of that. Uh, so as I wrote that other more technical article. And what I found when I looked at the uh, pattern of collapse in these societies, no polity lasts forever. The uh, average length of tenure of, of, of the polity in, in these cases that I studied was about 150 years for mm. the average. Uh, and, and then I looked at what, how did they collapse? Sometimes it's not too serious. It's just a change of government. Mm -hmm. uh, but a lot of these polities where the state has been very active at providing public goods and encouraging intermingling of people, commerce, and all that kind of stuff, uh, when it collapses, it really collapses in a very serious way, the, the loss of population, uh, you know, uh, agronomic failure, corruption, all this yeah. kind of stuff. So then I started looking at what causes that. And one of the things I noticed was that a lot of times it's a moral failure of that top leadership. Hmm. They, they move away from taking care of the kind of business that they're supposed to. And so, um, for that article, I picked uh, uh, High Roman Empire, uh, the Mughal, uh, uh, Venice, uh, and uh, these were ones that, for example, showed that very clearly. Um, the uh, and also uh, Ming China, mm. and uh, just to take the Mughal as an example. Mm -hmm. Everybody, the British uh, imperial rhetoric has told us for since the 18th century that the Mughals were terrible despots and that England saved India from these awful, mm -hmm. awful people. In reality, the Mughal had set up a really interesting government with public goods, equitable taxation. And one of the most important things is they had a ecumenical approach to religion. They were nominally Muslim, but they brought Hindus into their government. Hmm. Uh, they treated everyone equally, and they were able to uh, create a peaceful 
uh, situation and a unified situation in, in India for a century, that, that was very important to people uh, that they could move around. Uh, it used to be, for example, the cities had, uh, they would have a neighborhood of uh, Hindus, Sikhs, Muslims, they all lived separately and they were always arguing and mm-hmm. fighting, but they brought that all together and people could interact more freely you know, with uh, with others. And so the commercial system just really took off. The standard of living improved. Uh, there was less warfare. Uh, and so this was the founder of the Mughal dynasty, Akbar, who set this up. And then his son and then his grandson kept that going. But then the fourth one uh, decided that uh, Islam was going to be the main religion of South Asia and, and pushed all the Hindus out of the government. Uh, taxed Hindus, but not Muslims, which is uh, not really going to make people too happy. <laughs> Allowed for uh, the Muslims to tear down uh, Hindu temples. Mm. I mean, it was really a war then because of, you know, Muslim against Hindu, et cetera. And of course, then everything started to spiral down. I mean, it just, yeah. uh, the confidence that people had had in that government evaporated and then it became very uh, contested and difficult. And then what happened is that they, they were so weak after that governmentally, they couldn't resist the British coming in. The, mm. uh, the, uh, uh, and they basically were able to take over because the Mughals had been so weakened by that. So that was just one example. In Venice, they had a great system uh, in which the leadership could be impeached. If they, you know, they weren't supposed to have anything to do with business because that would be bias. There's a lot of commerce going on there in Venice. And if the leadership is involved in commerce, that would be a you know, conflict of interest. So mm-hmm. they very carefully monitored them. Their family was not allowed to be involved in business. They had, a, again, a, a, a religious ecumenism where they were open to all religions. They were Catholic, but that was an international trade center. And so they had people from Africa, they had Jews, they had Muslims. I mean, they, so in order to keep things going and have peace among their population, they did not uh, prioritize the Catholic church. So any of their leaders, they're called the Doge, any of those leaders who allied themselves with the papacy could be impeached because that was, you know, you, mm. you have your own religion, just don't bring it into politics yeah so they had a and they had impeached several uh, doges over the couple centuries before the uh, 18th century but then at the end of that period the doge first of all he wasn't vetted properly he was a wealthy person who had shown no interest in the well-being of the venetian uh, government uh, he or his son became accepted the position of uh, Bishop of Bergamo, which was illegal. Hmm. Uh, and the sons were involved in commercial activities, which was illegal. And normally they would have 
uh, impeached the Doge, but they didn't do it. Uh, they stood with him. And people in Venice were going, what is going on? He's mm -hmm. clearly breaking the law. You know, and there's this uh, social bond, a moral bond between the leadership and the people. Uh, and he and they broke that. And then the, uh, after that, it just started to spiral. Was there a, uh, a time for so, you know, in, in recap, what you're saying is you you did all this research regarding um, moral failure. Like this article is called Moral Collapse and State Failure, a view from yeah. the past. And you studied roughly 30 civilizations. And, yeah. and as you were studying these civilizations, realizing that they they had a lot of democratic ways about them, like America really wasn't the yeah. first amazing democracy. There was actually a lot of amazing democracies prior to America. There are some unique things about America. Mm -hmm. However, it, it's not as unique as what people are saying it is. And then mm -hmm. as you're studying this, you find that there's a trend in state failure correlating to moral collapse. Mm -hmm. Now, after you've seen, as you've been studying moral collapse and state failure, is there a specific time frame that collapse starts to occur after more, more moral failure takes place? Well, it's a little bit variable. You know, sometimes collapse uh, results from external, uh, you know, like, for example, the classical Greek democracy was destroyed by the Macedonians, so that it didn't have anything to do with internal collapse. Some of them collapsed because um, the one of the things you have to that came up again and again is that the really wealthy people and the old aristocrats and all that kind of stuff they don't like democracy they hate it because mm -hmm. it helps the common people and so they're always fighting against us so sometimes that means that the uh, period of which there's democracy is very short because of all of this opposition uh, so it just the time frame is pretty variable uh, just the shortest uh, i think for the highly well-governed polities was classical Athens, which is our, everybody thinks that they, we can trace our democracy back there. Mm. There were two periods of democracy, each of which lasted 40 years. And uh, there was an internal revolt by the aristocrats and, and killed the democracy after it had only been uh, going for about 40 years. Then there was about, I forget how many years, but maybe 15 or 20 years of autocracy. Uh, and then the Athenians reestablished democracy, but that only lasted for 40 years mm. or so uh, until they were conquered by uh, Philip II. And he didn't like democracy, so he did away with it. So yeah, I, can, I can listen to you all day. This is amazing. Continue. <laughs> anyway, it's variable, you know. Yeah, okay. That, that's a great answer. Uh, yeah. You know, on this... Uh, article it says moral collapse in state failure but there is a difference between moral collapse and ethical collapse have you found any difference in your research between the morality of a, a government and the ethics of a government in their downward trend to collapse yeah in a sense there's probably a lot of overlap in those because it's a it's a code of conduct uh, they're expected to follow and uh, the reason I use moral is that because it, it's that bond that's a moral mutual obligation between the leadership and the people. And that's 
usually I would say comes more within the context of moral. Moral refers to uh, social, the, the, what you do that's socially beneficial to yourself and others, uh, and uh, following the rules. Ethics is uh, sort of more of an individual thing. It doesn't really connect their behavior specifically to the, uh, you know, that, that bond, that social compact or, or, or social contract. And mm -hmm. so that's why I used uh, 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 moral, yeah. uh, even though really in, in essence, one of the things that happened is that these people did violate the ethical uh, expectations. But yeah. what I wanted emphasize was that it's not just a failure of an individual to live up to the expectations. That person is so central to the society that when they do that, there's a, it ramifies out and, you know, has a bigger uh, sort of consequence when people lose confidence and they mm. expect the leadership to, to do things. In Interesting. A well, this is kind of, there, there's a, always an ongoing debate. When you, we talk about morality and talk about ethics, there's always that God factor. You know, if we're talking about how a person can be good or not, you know, where does that type of morality come from? So I'm curious with your definition of moral, is that a subjective morality or are you coming from the position more of that morality is objective? Uh, yeah, this, in this case is more objective. I, okay. I know some people would say, okay, you can't talk about morals because those are relative. Each culture has its own moral code. Mm -hmm. But if you look at these societies comparatively cross-culturally like I did, you see this kind of bond that develops. If the state builders and if the citizens agree to cooperate, uh, that's a little bit more than just, um, for example, uh, you know, does somebody violate some moral norm of, I don't know what, you know, but uh, uh, if it's embedded in this whole social uh, environment, then I think it's a little bit different kinds of morality. You can talk about that across cultures because you see this again and again. A pattern of it. Yeah. So if, if the pattern... Not particular to a culture. Yeah. But so what you're saying is that pattern is very similar to all these types of governments in vast differing time periods. Mm -hmm. And so if yeah. it was subjective, then it might be a little different in how it came to yeah. be. Yeah, That's it would be hard to compare. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. All right. So now let's keep digging a little deeper. Um, a view from the past. And then you, at the end of your article, you, you start talking about what it looks like for America. You know, many people have said that the rise and fall of empires like Rome has, was 200 to 250 years um, since their initial beginning. And some people argue that America is on its way to collapse. And you made some interesting um, parallels here in this article in regards to the moral failure of America um, at, in, in the state of its steady decline. So kind of walk me through if you think America is, is on that same type of track. Mm -hmm. Yeah, these uh, the societies that we studied, there's a whole broad range from more collective, more uh, cooperative, and uh, where you have these moral expectations to societies where uh, the leadership is very powerful uh, and doesn't have to really listen to the people, doesn't have that kind of moral bond. In fact, the people may hate 
the leadership. Uh, they may try to leave, you know, get out of there. They, they may not want to pay their taxes because they don't feel like they're getting anything for it. So mm-hmm. in those cases, the, the, the leadership doesn't have that moral bond. I mean, it's, it's absent. So they don't have to try to find out what the people need to know. And they can control the people and use the powerful resources that they have available to assert total control, just like Putin, let's say, uh, or, uh, you know, some of these other uh, autocrats that we have now. Uh, the political scientists are saying that the proportion of this kind of autocratic, amoral type of government is increasing in the world. It has been since about the 1970s. Instead of uh, everybody thought, oh, once we have democracy, then everybody will want it. And, uh, but now we're getting this collapse of uh, many of these uh, democratic systems are turning into autocratic systems. Hmm. Uh, and those leaders, you know, cheat, they do whatever they need to do to remain in power. They've got the resources to control the population. Uh, they can arrest people for opposing them and all kinds of other things like that. We saw that happening with Donald Trump not being willing to follow the rules and then being impeached twice, but being let go by his political party. And we thought, oh, that's very similar to what happened in uh, Venice. Uh, When the people expected the government to impeach this person and they didn't do it. And so then they thought, well, it's just a bunch of rich people running things now, so we don't care about it as much as we used to. And that's what started Venice on uh, decline. Are you seeing that similar trend now where the American people are seeing um, that it seems like the rich control everything? Are you seeing that similar trend here in America? Yeah, definitely. A lot of work by political scientists is pointing out that we probably don't even have a real uh true democracy anymore mm. so, i mean the supreme court has allowed uh, uh big money to uh, you know to stream into election uh, in, into the election process uh and uh, so a lot of the uh, they asked in fact some political scientists have estimated how much voice do different categories of people have and it's switching more and more to wealthy people hmm. and the society is becoming so divided That's very uh, interesting. in terms of wealth and when the thing is that uh, when people feel like they're getting something beneficial from the government they don't mind paying taxes mm-hmm. but there's been this idea for a long time since Ronald Reagan uh, Thatcher, et cetera, the taxes are a burden uh, and uh, not something that's positive for society. Hmm. So increasingly, people have a negative view of their government, which is coming from those same forces. Wealthy people typically don't like very much government. It's too many rules and too many taxes. They don't like it, so they push back against it. And a lot of people believe that, that government is... Uh, bad that taxes are bad and so we're we're pushing away from those ideals that really make it possible to have a democracy yeah and, and that's that's been pretty well documented yeah 
And we're seeing that across seemingly all levels. You know, one yeah. of the um, things I do here is I try my best to broaden the gap that's occurred with local politics. And local top politics are, for the most part, the ones that are going to affect the people the most. Um, in my mm-hmm. city, I, we have, I live in a city of about 30,000. The county judge seat was just up. And so I, I was just interviewing and having conversations with the county judges and hardly anybody turned out to the voter polls because nobody believes in the system anymore. People think it's just, uh, it's just rigged. Yeah. So there was like, I think 13,000 votes of, I want to say five or 600,000 people. Like there was a, it was a lot of people live in this County and 13,000 people voted or came to show up and they didn't even, they didn't even like research who the judge is going to be. They just kind of voted for the name that they know. Which is kind of wild to me because there's there's this continuing progression in what you're saying that it's moving further and further away from democracy or democratic policies for the people and the common people and more towards an elite type of autocratic yeah. system, even on the local level. It's kind of wild to think about that the America that I believed in and grew up in mm-hmm. may not be that same America for my kids. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really uh, discouraging. Uh, I live out here in uh, Oregon where uh, the government was very active, you know, in the post-World War II period, building bridges and dams and hydroelectric power systems and all this kind of stuff, and you can see it, you know. It, uh, uh, and now it's hard even for the road department to repair a damaged road because people don't want to pay taxes. And, you know, they want to have tax reductions all the time. And they don't seem to mind the decline in the services. Uh, as, uh, here in Oregon, it's not as bad as some states, I'm sure. But still, yeah, the, the citizens are seeing, uh, and they're being encouraged to not see the benefits of effective yeah. government. And if the government isn't effective, if it's corrupt, then sure, you don't have to think it's good because, you know, then you don't want to support it. And that's, that's kind of, I, I, yeah, it's a shame, but I think that's the trend that's occurred mm-hmm. where politicians, career politicians or businessmen who are, or, or are getting into these worlds of policies and politics are just paying whoever they want to pay to get their, their jobs done. And it's at the yeah. expense of the taxpayer. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I agree. Like you need to have taxes for infrastructure. Like if you want, if you want cops, if you want fire, any mess, mm-hmm. if you want sewage, yeah. trash, I mean, all the water, Everything that we take yeah. for granted comes from uh, our taxpaying. However, yeah. we're, we've seen how pol- politicians across the board, local, state, and national, federal, uh, have wasted our, our hard-earned dollars, you know, and they're making lots of money. And, you know, me, the little, the little middle-class guy, uh, is barely getting by. So it's frustrating, yeah. I can see. Oh, um, yeah. No, it's a, it's a shame. I mean, out here on the West Coast, we have a homeless uh, crisis. Yeah. People, even if they're working, they don't make enough money to afford an apartment. I mean, it's, that's, uh, that's terrible. Now, one of the things that we did know studying these early civilizations is that generally speaking, there was a sense in the culture, not the more autocratic ones, but in the more democratic ones that, uh, money can, uh, be destructive. Wealth that isn't under control can destroy the social fabric. And they, pretty much all of them had this sense hmm. that we have to make sure we control 
the, the money. And this is why, you know, Venice was a very wealthy city uh, back in, the, you know, the 15th, 16th centuries when, when I, I studied it. Uh, but boy, were they ever worried about the effects of wealth on their civic vitality. Hmm. And that's why they, they put all these rules for people involved in the government that they can't be involved in business. They can't take bribes. And if they do, they're out. Wow. Uh, and then after the leadership uh, had went through their term of office, they had would, would put together an investigative committee to investigate every single thing they did. And if they found any shenanigans, they would sue their estates for that uh, money. Uh, the classical Greeks also uh, kept tight, tight control over people who were in positions of governing authority. And anybody who did anything uh, you know, that was uh, financially beneficial to them, but at the expense of the polity, now they would slam them right into hmm. prison. I mean, they had a very tight control over that and they, because everybody knew that money can distort. And but what happened in the in, in the Western intellectual tradition since about the 18th century, and philosophers have noticed that people stopped worrying about the effects of money on the social fabric and on the vitality hmm. of government, and it just dropped out. Uh, and then later in you know, more recent periods, especially the 20th century, the different academic disciplines split off into you got economics over here, you got political science over here, you got anthropology over here. And so political scientists don't look at the, they don't just don't look at, they're not interested in that. And, econ and economists are interested in the market, not in the government. In fact, they don't even like government. But it's all and the same with society. Burden. So all these disciplines are separate. Yeah. And, and the goal of this project was to try to bring these disciplines back huh. together so that they're considering that. If you look at the political science literature on why are we getting this backsliding of democracy, they never consider that financial aspect. They don't. Huh. It's, just, it's just not part of their remit, you know, so they don't That's do wild. It. I know it's bad news. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's it's interesting that it's also happening in the academic world because we see that in medicine. You know, I was an EMT for seven years and my undergrads in public health. And I worked at the trauma center for about six of those years. And it was a county trauma center in wow. County, yeah, Fort Worth, um, level one trauma center. It, it was very interesting because you, you get to see all aspects of medicine at yeah. once because it's a residency program as well. And so... <laughs> medicine is divided into these specialties, just like you're talking about. Mm -hmm. And when you try and treat, you know, an emergency condition in a primary way, or you don't treat a primary condition in a primary way from the primary physician aspect, and you send them off to the next doctor to be referred, and then they send them off the next doctor to be referred, you're missing out on so many gaps because what yeah. if, you know, the multi-system organ failure is caused first by what they ate, you know, 20 years yeah. ago. Yeah, right. Instead of going to see the GI doctor and then he's calling it kidney failure, which led to poly poly polynephritis and all these other things, when mm -hmm. in reality it started 20 years ago. And mm – -hmm. There's a, a fairly new, I'm sure you've heard of it, it's called functional medicine, and it's trying to talk to all the disciplines at once. Mm -hmm. um, it's a specialty, I think, from what I understand. However, it's not getting a whole lot of traction because 
people are in a way pushing it off to the side like it's natural or the it's the homeopathic side of medicine and that's where they keep it mm-hmm. and it's interesting to see that's exactly happening in research and academia mm-hmm. and all these specialties and nobody's talking to each other it makes it makes no sense why that is the case and we see all these gaps we see okay there's this specialty in political science is talking about this but it is affected like you're saying on the other side of the spectrum in economics Uh, yeah why do you think that's happening well uh i wish i knew i mean uh, but it gets reproduced because the 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 way they train their graduate students is just you read just your discipline and you and you you have to show you've mastered your discipline, not big problems. Your <sighs> discipline. Yeah, it's, I remember probably 30, 40 years ago, there was a movement toward what they called uh, general practitioner, which was a way to overcome tests. That went away. Yeah. <laughs> that didn't yeah. last. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So now no. you're talking, you have a new language now, right? It sounds like the, sort of the same thing. Yeah. So I guess there are little pushes to get this going, but nothing happens then. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah. Why is it that people like us, um, I mean, you're, you've been in the business, I mean, probably all your life uh, in <laughs> research and academia, and I, I'm kind of on the beginning edge of this. Like we, we're seeing the same exact thing. We're seeing these gaps. And, I, and I've seen a lot of other people, a lot of other professors at universities that I've spoken with are seeing the exact same thing mm-hmm. and they're seeing what it's causing. So how do we fix this? It seems like money, like you're saying, how money is destroying the fabric of society has kind of infiltrated every sphere of life. And whoever has the most money, whether it be pharmaceutical companies mm-hmm. or whoever's paying the bills at the, at the universities, they're the ones who are going to have the, the most say and top-notch say for what is done. Um, that seems to me like that's the pattern. Are you seeing anything differently? Are you seeing other blind spots that I'm not seeing? Kind of talk to me, walk me through that. Well, I don't know. I mean, I, it's so entrenched Yeah. that it's... You know, this is really bad, I think, for a a civilization to get so entrenched with these patterns that are not productive. And so how do you undo that? I I wish I knew. (laughs) Moral collapse Uh, and state uh, failure. (laughs) I try. Yeah, I try to do some uh, by doing that myself. I mean, you know, mastering multiple disciplines as an example to other people. Here's what you can do. And it turns out to be pretty big and so I can publish in a political science journal or an anthro journal or a sociology journal and that's very unusual so maybe just by setting an example people see the power of that maybe they'll latch on to it in fact it's interesting you say that because I've seen researchers get ostracized saying that they're not an expert because Mm -hmm. of a controversial topic that they talk about Mm -hmm. you know I've I've seen what was that it was uh, was actually Dr. Harold Wallach it was very extremely controversial in uh, Poland um, where he, he published a research article kind of saying, Hey man, the vaccines are, are, are you gotta be careful. Just let's just be careful. That's what all he was saying. And he po- he published it in a, in a journal that he, it wasn't his specialty and he got can He pretty much got canceled. Like he got fired from his job. Yeah. Um, and I get like, you do have to be careful with these type of t- touchy subjects. Um, but the goal here is to learn. And mm-hmm. I feel like that's what we've lost. We, we've lost the passion to learn and mm-hmm. 
gain other people's perspectives to push public policy. It's now it's like, it's my way or the highway. Here's my billion Mm -hmm. dollars to give you. And this is what I want. So Mm -hmm. earlier you talked about how, you know, Venice really saw the, the issues with money being too high a standard for everything that they do. It kind of, you you said it unfolded the fabric of their society. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm seeing that here in America today. I, before practically walk me through what you think might be some of those things that are unfolding America today on the financial side. Well, we've had uh, the uh, move really in this culture toward what we call a neoliberal perspective. And that is that the path to the future is the market, is the commerce, uh, the commercial aspect. Uh, as opposed to uh, an effective state. Uh, And, you know, people say, oh, that's communism. You know, we don't want to go that direction. But that's not communism. If you have an effective state, that doesn't mean they own the means of production or anything. Uh, And so we, but we have this idea that you either have a state path or a commercial path to the future. And the reality is, I looked again, I looked in my comparative study, and political scientists have done this also, good government that it listens to the people, et cetera, is consistent with high levels of commercial development and high standard of living. And that's what exactly what I found. I call it a co-active process in the past that you get a good government goes with commercial development. For one thing, people can move around more. Uh, it's not so subdivided. Uh, and um, they have uh, more uh, food security because the state provides in case of you know problems with food supply, they can do some things about that. Uh, they build cities that are more that are healthier, that have fresh water, that have better roads, better communications, uh, better fire control, and all that kind of stuff. So everybody, benefits and the standard of living goes up, uh, commercial activity goes up, urbanism goes up, population typically will increase because they don't have so many episodes of disease, etc. So how do you how do you we don't really subscribe to that anymore? We think that the commercial path is the only true path to the modern future. Mm. I wonder if there's a balance in that though, because if the state if the state is not morally relevant and they've already kind of like when you look at Venezuela, Venezuela or even China, you know, you have Mm -hmm. these very socialist autocratic communist Mm -hmm. governments where Mm -hmm. they've taken all control and the value of the, of their dollar. I mean, quality of life has dramatically been reduced, especially in Venezuela. And everybody brings that scenario to the argument of socialism. We don't want to be Venezuela, but however, I also get how, well, from what your research is showing, that money could, like the, the, the pursuit of money and competition could break down the capitalist society. Is there a balance between understanding the role of competition and how valuable it can be to the typical small business, while at the same time understanding that the state and the government has a role to play? Yeah. Because it seems like the state and the government has just fallen into this business mindset that has destroyed so many other people mm. in many ways. 
So is there a balance in that? Because we don't want to become Venezuela. No. We, we oh, need to understand yeah. that competition Competition drives down prices. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's very good for the consumer in the long run. And multiple, you know, capitalism, the capitalist society shows that that's very good. Mm-hmm. Um, but there has to be a balance in that. And it seems like from what your research is showing is that that, that hasn't been shown quite yet. Yeah, because partially just because of the rhetoric and the ideology that uh, that neoliberal or pro-market ideology kind of precludes the possibility that people are going to think that we should have an effective government, not a controlling government that controls the market, but one that facilitates uh, and provides equitable access to the market. And we've been not very good at doing that. Uh, and, uh, you know, there are so many ways in which these wealthy people can undercut government. For example, yeah. they can move the profits offshore and not pay taxes. Mm-hmm. And that hurts the government. That hurts the people who depend on a government for things like social security, safety, you know, uh, and that kind of thing. Wealthy people park their money offshore and don't pay taxes. Uh, corporations go out to these developing countries and uh, pull out profits and pay their minimum amount of tax. And that doesn't help that country build mm-hmm. up an effective government. It undercuts. And so then, and then groups like the uh, International Monetary Fund come in and say, okay, in their you know, pro-market, so they go, okay, like, for example, in Cairo, uh, which had a publicly owned water system, and they kept the prices down because there's so many poor people who need uh, water service. The IMS said, we'll loan you X billions of dollars if you'll uh, privatize the water system, which they did. And the price of water went up like two or three times right away. <laughs> and then a whole bunch of poor people were completely without water. Well, that's a bad policy. Come yeah. on. You know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so here definitely. are a few people profiting off of the water supply and a lot of people not even able to get water. And then, you know, and that and that kind of policy is counterproductive. And you can't you cannot do that. And you can't just keep cutting taxes. Uh I don't know. Uh, yeah, yeah, we need a more balance. Right now, we're definitely uh, on the side of the uh, neoliberal side. Hmm. So what do we do as America, you know, whenever we're seeing from your trends, you know, we've seen some of that moral failure. We've seen that those ethical failures. We see that power has been corrupted. We see the, the increasing divide between um, what government services can give the people and the trust that people have in the government. All these are main points that you pointed out in this podcast, as well as your paper. So we're seeing that, that possible future failure of state collapse in America. Um, if that occurs, there's always a correction, whether it's an invasion or an entire new upset in the entire governmental system. Um, what do you think based on the evidence, the future of America is? Uh, well, yeah, that's a pretty big. <laughs> I know it is. I know. Question, but I, yeah, uh, I just, it, you know, it, it, we're kind of struggling uh, with that right now, and uh, I'm hoping that 
that push to the neoliberal and the big money and the inequality. I hope people are starting to question that more and more. They do seem to be somewhat and get us back to a more equitable uh, kind of society where we don't just automatically assume that if you're helping somebody, you're a communist. You know, like, like I said, out here on the West Coast, we're acutely aware of this because we have a mild climate and we have uh, a pretty uh, liberal democratic governance out here. And so people stream in here uh, and they're living on the streets. You know, yeah. this is, it's unbelievable that this could be happening in the United States. And well, we really need there's a hold of that. There's another perspective I want to share with you because I took care of the homeless population significantly in here in the Fort Worth area. Yeah. And I, I would talk to these homeless people and ask them, Hey, why didn't like, there's a job like right here. What's keeping you from going there? And they always say taxes. They say, I make more money panhandling than I ever did making a, getting a job. So he goes, there's no benefit to me getting a job right now because I'm actually making more and all my healthcare is free. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's hard for me. Like I, I want to help the individual. I want to help and understand that there are low socioeconomic status people that are getting little to no health care that they're, they're struggling in so many different ways. Mm-hmm. But there's the other side of me that is seeing this entire homeless population that chooses to be homeless because they're living off of my taxpayer dollars yeah. and they're making more money than I've ever made. Mm-hmm. At forty thousand dollars, I was at that time I was making twenty five thousand dollars. You know, working my forty hours a week at the hospital, getting beat down every day, barely, barely making it through. And I'm over here taking care of this guy who is yelling at me. He gets free sandwiches. He gets free health care. He lives on the street and panhandles, makes forty to fifty thousand dollars a year. So. I don't know what to do with that. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, we talk about this. My wife and I talk about this quite often. I mean, a lot of these people honestly are working and can't get an apartment. That is wrong. Now, there are a lot of these homeless people who are doing drugs. There's oh, yeah. money on drugs and not on housing. And a lot of people, and then again, this whole neoliberal thing kind of pushes people toward a very selfish kind of, you the role. I don't really want to be a citizen. Uh, I don't want to pay taxes. I don't want to do my part. I don't want to be part of this. I want to just free ride on what I can do without having to actually work. And I think that's becoming more common because of this neoliberal idea from economic theory is that people do the best for themselves and for society if they behave completely selfishly. And that goes into play with your moral failure. About themselves. And so then if you have that, then you're going to get a lot lot of people who will believe that I don't want to be a citizen because that means I have an obligation then. They want benefits, but no obligation. So they don't want to have that obligation Mm. to pay taxes. Interesting. But economists and neoliberal types have been telling people for decades now that taxes are bad, that taxes are a burden. And of course, these people listen to that. Hmm. Uh, when uh, my wife and I moved to Oregon, we saw a bumper sticker that said, taxes pay for civilization. And we go, oh, we like living here. That's cool. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but we need to get more people on board with the fact yeah. that they get 
become part of society. You know? Yeah, it, it doesn't work whenever you don't have a strong infrastructure and you need tax to pay that. Yeah. Unfortunately, there's just a lot of cutting. You know, a lot of people are taking taxes for themselves. Mm-hmm. And that goes back to what you're talking about, moral failure. Even the homeless population, when you reference, uh, you're, you're just kind of living in a selfish uh, system and you don't because you don't want to be a part of the system. Mm-hmm. That goes back to moral failure as well. Mm-hmm. Exactly. There's, a, there's a lot of interesting correlations to there that uh, yeah. I'm, I'm I'm very intrigued by. Um, so earlier you said that as we're about to wrap up, but earlier you said that um, uh, you hope that people will listen to what's going on and, and change. Um, that's a hope, but right now the evidence is not necessarily showing that. Mm-hmm. And many predictions are showing that there might be a state collapse, if not world collapse. And if you, if you believe in the MIT, algorithm in 1970s i believe is what it was everything has fallen into place exactly how the mit algorithm said it was going to fall into place and we'll have we would have uh, state collapse and world collapse by 2040s are you seeing similar trends if things don't change uh yeah i think it's going to be very difficult to get out of this uh and uh, what we need is to elect uh effective leaders who are not bound up with that neoliberal so much. They're not interested in controlling the economy, but they want to facilitate uh, growth. And again and again, uh, that pays off because people become more energized. Uh, They become more interested in what the state is doing. They read more, like you're saying, these people don't read. uh, They don't read about the candidates. That's typical. You know, they're alienated. So get them involved. Let them see the benefits they uh, have. I remember one time a student at Purdue where I used to teach uh, was complaining about how bad our government was and everything. And I said, okay, uh, I want you to go live for, let's say, six weeks in two places where I've spent some time, Mexico and Pakistan. (laughs) <laughs> and just come back here and tell me that it's really terrible here. Yeah, for real. In Mexico, you, you, you know, the police are corrupt. Yep. You can't depend on I've lived in Mexico for extended periods. I know what the deal is down there. In Pakistan, they've got guards with rifles at the entrance of every store, hotel, yep. uh, everywhere. It's... Yep armed to the teeth because there's so much violence and crime there. And I just, I'd like you to live there for six weeks and then come back here and not appreciate what you've got here. And he was, you're absolutely right. (laughs) Yeah. I've done a, I've done quite a a bit of extensive traveling as well. Nigeria as well. I was about six, seven hours from the, from ISIS. (laughs) Yeah, working out of high school there. Yeah, (laughs) when you talk about war and territory, like we're we're driving by villages that are entire entirely burnt down. because of ISIS. Um, I spent a lot of time in Managua, Nicaragua, Mm. where the elections there are extremely violent and extremely volatile. Mm. And I I think that people don't travel enough, and it's very hard to to see how good America is right now. Yeah. And I, I bring you on the podcast and want to talk to you right, because I, I want to see your perspective on what your research is and what you think is going to happen. But at the same time, the flip side of that coin, I, I want people to know that like, if you haven't traveled to these other countries, you, you still don't understand how good we have it. Even though there's a lot of issues, there's a lot of power corruption. Um, we have it good comparatively. You yeah. Know? And you make a very good yeah. point. Yeah. 
And when people do travel, they just stay in a Marriott or a Hilton yeah. or something. <laughs> no, man, I, I like to get in the culture. We, In fact, whenever we travel, we like to go find an Airbnb mm-hmm. um, in the middle of a neighborhood mm-hmm. and shop at the local grocery stores, mm-hmm. all, the whole nine yards. Yeah, great. Because um, it gives you perspective. Yeah, great, yeah. So, <laughs> well, this has been wonderful. Um, I hope to have yeah, you on again. Been- yeah, I love talking. Your your knowledge and insights are very fascinating to me. Uh, you're, I've been keeping up with your work uh, regarding this paper and others, and I think it's awesome. Uh, I hope to have you on again soon. If if you would want that, I would love to have another conversation sure, with sure. you. Sure, it was fun. Because uh, it's just great. It. Yeah, well, thank you so much, Dr. Blanton. Okay, bye. Have a good one. Bye. bye.